welcome back to the Move Against Cancer podcast. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Lucy Gossage. I'm an oncologist. I treat testicular cancers and sarcomas. Um, I'm co-founder of 5K Your Way Move Against Cancer. Um, and I love outdoor adventures, putting myself out of my comfort zone and doing crazy things uh, in the fresh air. Um, it's been a while since I've uh, I've interviewed someone for this podcast. Um, the lady I'm talking to today is truly uh, incredible. I came across her a couple of months ago at the British Sarcoma Conference, um, where they played a short excerpt from a keynote speech she'd given at a previous conference a, a few weeks before. Krista is a junior doctor working in the NHS. Uh, she has climbed mountains. She is about to get married, and she's also being treated for metastatic sarcoma. Um, I, I'm not going to talk anymore because I can't wait to, start to, to get stuck into uh, this conversation. Um, I really hope you enjoy it. I think it's going to be a special one. Um, Krista, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Um, this is the first podcast I've done in a while, and I am so excited to chat with you. Um, so as as I was telling you before we started recording, um, I came across you about a month ago at the British Sarcoma Conference um, and you had done a keynote speech for the Bone Cancer Research Trust and they played a five minute clip. Um, and honestly, you, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. I've never been in a conference where everyone's gone quite so quiet and clearly just taken on every single word. Um, so that was how I came across you. I went straight onto Instagram the next talk. I was like, I've got to find this lady. I've got to ask her whether she'd come on the podcast. Um, it takes a lot to stun consultants into silence. Um, so thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Um, and congratulations, because I've seen you've just finished your F1 year and are now a, 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 a second level junior doctor for anyone Yay, who doesn't know what I F1 means. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's exciting because um, I did it less than full time because of my treatment. So it's taken me ages. So it feels like quite a nice achievement. Quite a nice underplaying it. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a massive achievement. It's a massive achievement for anyone, let alone yeah. someone on cancer treatment. <laughs> um, so let's just start really very simply. Tell tell everyone um, who doesn't know you a little bit about you. Okay, so my name is Krista. Uh, I'm about to turn thirty. I'm Canadian, but I live in in London. Uh, yeah, about five years ago, I was diagnosed with bone cancer, osteosarcoma in my left femur. And I've gone on to have uh, five or six different chemotherapy treatments, lots of different regimes. Uh, and uh, I was doing really well post-treatment around COVID time when I found out, unfortunately, that I had metastatic disease. And then uh, that was, you know, in the midst of medical school, which is great timing. So COVID, medical school, metastatic cancer, and then I stopped chemotherapy so that I could go back to school and finish my degree. And now I'm a junior doctor working for the NHS and I'm still on, uh, I'm on a new chemotherapy now, which is oral, which is much nicer than my infusion chemo. And yeah, and now I'm on chemotherapy, but living a really good life. I'm working as a doctor and yeah, I'm really uh, enjoying things. Yeah, it's going well. <laughs> oh, you're you're clearly um an amazing person but something that something that struck me that I'd quite like to to delve into from what you've just said is that you decided to stop chemotherapy to finish medical school tell tell me what you mean by that 
Okay, so when I was re-diagnosed with metastatic disease in my pleura, uh, I was obviously restarted on a different infusion chemotherapy than the previous few lines that I'd had. But unfortunately, during COVID times, uh, chemotherapy, that chemotherapy specifically made me quite immunocompromised. And they wouldn't let me go to any medical school placements as a final year medical student. Obviously, you're, you're in basically in hospital and working as a, as a student, but it would be too dangerous to be there as an immunocompromised patient myself. So I decided potentially recklessly, hopefully, um, that I would stop chemotherapy, allowing myself to finish my rotations uh, knowing full well that likely in that time my cancer would grow and also with the hopes of starting a different treater, treatment down the line that would be safer for me to continue with my studies and then hopefully with medicine as a doctor. So that's, I mean, that's, that's such a complex decision to make. <laughs> um, I yes. guess I'm intrigued as, um, so firstly, as an oncologist, I would say I love that your oncologist gave you I always think our role is to give people information they need to make the decision that's right for them. And that was clearly yeah. the decision that's right for you. Yeah. So you, you must have had a very enabling oncologist to even yeah. open that as a discussion. I think my oncologist, I mean, my oncologist is incredible uh, and she really respects sort of where I'm coming from. And that was a really big goal of mine. And she knew that I'd been working toward it for obviously many years and it wasn't that I was going to go off treatment and never return to treatment. I only had a few months left that I needed to accomplish. And it felt like I was like, I'd run this marathon. I was an inch from the finish line and I just couldn't get there. So the reason why I stopped was also because I knew that I was a um, potential candidate for a new medication on compassionate grounds. So that was kind of in the near future, distant future an option and I also knew that even if that didn't work out this new drug I could just go back on the treatment I was on then that was working so I knew that I had different options but at the end of the day this was you know you know you, you take all this treatment and you do this horrendous chemotherapy so you can live a good life and if you can't pursue your dreams and your goals then it, you know what is it all for so I think my team really respected that and they supported me a lot through it and it was, I mean, it was, I started treatment, but we knew that we were, you know, we were doing it as safely as possible and there were different options and it was for a short amount of time and it was kind of like just sprint to the finish and then we'll make a new plan. So it ended up, um, yeah, my tumors did grow in that time <laughs> um, as expected, but I, I think that didn't worry me as much as it did when I didn't have any plan. I think as an oncologist, we know the power of a good plan. If you have a plan, then everything just seems to be okay because you know that there's some other line of treatment available and there's some other option available. So it, to me, felt like way worth that risk because that's, you know, that's something I was working for for years and years. And to be two months away and to be told, no, don't bother applying was like just devastating. I had to try. Mm. That's um that's very powerful. Did your did your family and your your fiance did they support that decision or did they come back at you and say come on you've got to you know treating the cancer is more important? No, I think everybody was kind of on the same team. We all knew like it wasn't like I was just going to stop treatment forever. It was just a kind of like I just posted it to everyone as like oh it's just a break. We're just gonna take a quick break, finish medical school, become a doctor, then we'll go back to treatment and it will be fine. <laughs> 
And what was it like to finish, to qualify as a doctor? Because you've written um, that, well, I guess take us back to when you were told that your cancer had come back and the conversations that, that you had at that time. When it came back, it was so much worse than the first time. I mean, obviously the first time you get told you have cancer is pretty scary. I was told while I was um, on a general surgery elective in Prague. So I was like somewhere else it was kind of a crazy story. But the first time I remember being shocked, but not like devastated because you don't really know how bad it's going to be, especially with a bone cancer. I mean, you know a lot from social media and about about common types of cancer and you kind of see this picture of like you know you know what it looks like on television for someone to have chemotherapy but you don't really know what it's like so it's shocking and it's sad but you don't really know the depth of it whereas being re-diagnosed it was way more traumatizing because I mean I'd already had quite a lot of chemo and you know I know no cancer is a good cancer to have or a bad cancer to have but I mean when you talk about sarcomas, you have a lot of treatment. It's really intense treatment. It's multi-days on infusion chemotherapy kind of treatment for many months. It's, it's pretty grueling. So it's having, horrible. It's really so for, yeah, for, it, it would probably be around two, two and a half months of treatment, then surgery, then another four or five months of treatment and yeah. really intensive. It's, it's really, really yeah, tough. Yeah, it's brutal. And not only are you having all the chemo, which makes you feel grim, a lot of people are, you know, you're kind of instantly disabled, which, you know, you, you lose a limb or a leg or, you know, that's a lot to process as well. So when I was first diagnosed, I was in a wheelchair, like from the go. Uh, and that was really hard. And then I think the second time I was diagnosed with metastatic disease after being almost, you know, well for a few years, you weren't, you know, expecting anything to happen. You feel like you're, you've got the all clear. I was just about to have my two year anniversary, like post-cancer scan. And that's when they found out that I had the metastatic disease. And obviously then you know how bad it is. And it's, it is a lot worse. It was so much worse that time. And um, it also happened to coincide with COVID. So I was alone mm. and that was really hard as well. Yeah. And that was, I, I think, the clip that they pay, played in this conference was actually you talking about how you were you were given that news and how it's made you reflect on what you described as the language of cancer and, and take it in, in, into your career as a doctor. What, what te- well, I guess I'm, I'm trying to... <laughs> trying to get you to tell that story because it was so it it sounded very traumatic the way that you heard that your cancer had come back yeah I think it's so difficult because when the healthcare professional is giving you the news especially if they're not an oncologist potentially so for the the person telling me that I had a secondary metastatic disease was the surgeon who'd gone to operate on me and they looked inside and they found all the tumors in my lung and in my pleura. And then after they sewed me back up, they basically didn't do anything. And then they came to speak to me afterward. And the language that they used, it wasn't carefully chosen as I would have hoped it would have been. And then at that point, a lot of words started getting thrown around that are really scary. I mean, especially if you're not a medical person. I mean, obviously at that point I was, I was, um, 
you know, nearly finished with medical school. I had a little bit of, you know, understanding of jargon, but, you know, people are saying stuff like, you know, it's palliative, terminal, incurable. And these words are really, really scary and um, threatening. And it makes you just feel like, no, I don't accept these words. I don't want these labels put on me. Like, you know, we haven't even looked at other options yet. And the way that it makes you feel to have those labels put on you, it makes you feel like everyone has given up. And you're, you know, you're not even in that headspace. You're not ready to give up. You just want to live your life for as long as you can, as well as you can. And so I think, um, yeah, the, the words without having the meaning behind them, without a plan and the power of a plan, it's, it's just, it's just words that are just like shock and awe. You just feel awful. Yeah. Did you, had you, had you ever in the the two years since finishing treatment so you were you were kind of in medical school or had you had you ever how much time had you spent thinking about the possibility it it may come back or had you just avoided that thought oh I knew it could come back I mean I I'm not you know the prognosis for bone cancer isn't great let's be honest it's not good um and the treatments haven't evolved a lot and when mm. I was diagnosed it was quite advanced and I'd had some local spread into my muscles and things so I wasn't oblivious but I'm very like worry when you have something to worry about mm. I'm quite optimistic and I try not to like focus on I mean obviously I get anxious before a scan and things like that but I don't know. I didn't live like in fear of it coming back, if that's what you mean, or I wasn't like dreading it. So when it did happen, uh, when they did find something on a scan, they initially told me that they thought it was endometriosis in my lung. And if you don't know what that is, it's like where the lining of your womb is growing in a different mm -hmm. part of your body other than in your womb. And they thought that there was like a bit of lung lining, uh, sorry, womb lining in my lung that was bleeding um, every month, like a period. And that's what they thought was in my lungs. So obviously I thought that was cool. And I was <laughs> going to just be so outrageous when they take this out and they find out it's endometriosis. And they were shocked when they found it was sarcoma. And I thought that was kind of wild because obviously I had a history of cancer. I thought they, you know, they should have suspected it, but I think it looked a bit weird on the imaging. Yeah. And, on the scan. and so they weren't sure until they saw it in surgery in the vats. And how much, how much time at medical school did you have left at that point? Oh, a few months, not long. <laughs> it was like quite a short amount of time left. And that was what was the worst thing is that um, when I was re-diagnosed with metastatic disease in the lung and in the pleura, they said, you know, don't bother applying for foundation. You're not going to make it like, you know, don't, they didn't say it in a, in a cruel way, but a lot of the team was like, you know, don't expend your energy on things that you don't have energy for. Like, don't put yourself through that because it'll be so sad, you know, knowing that you can't finish. Don't bother applying. I remember I had a very kind, well-meaning therapist tell me that I should focus on having values instead of having goals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that really, that really, really enraged me because I was like, you know, I've worked my whole life for this. Why should I give up my goals? And it, I don't know. I think... I felt like I might as well just die trying. Like you just go for everything you want. If you don't get it, you don't get it. But if you don't try, then you're definitely not going to get it. And look, looking back, like, I don't know, I, I got everything that I worked for and, you know, all the things that I wanted to achieve so far, like the big stuff, like becoming a doctor, for example, if mm -hmm. I hadn't submitted the application, if I just, you know, given up at that point, that wouldn't have been unreasonable, but I'm on the same page. Like, I think I would have regretted it. And I think the more that you push for, 
I don't, you know, you don't always win and you don't always get what you, what you hope for. And, you know, treatment doesn't always work. You know, that's happened to me before. I know that. Uh, but I think it's just always worth trying. I am. Um, I wrote down something from your Instagram. I think it was your, your most recent post, um, but it really moved me. Um, never, ever, ever give up on your goals. Never. The process of working towards them will be what you remember, not whether or not you get there every time. So let's keep going up. I think that was just after you your, your passed your F1. Yeah, yeah. What's I, your... Sorry, go on. Oh, no, I just... You, you keep going. I, so it's, I think one of the things I find hardest as, as an oncologist is when you're breaking bad news, balancing mm. reality with keeping that hope alive and I think that's something that I've really taken from these these podcasts actually is that yeah. something that people always come back at is is they need hope and I, yeah. I think until I'd until I'd started doing these interviews really I, I I never tried to take hope away but I also really wanted to to be honest about expectations yes, yes um, absolutely how's what's because you're you're a doctor and yeah side of an oncologist breaking bad news what's what's your yeah. take on that I just really think like okay of course you need to tell the truth of course you need to understand like you know what you're saying to someone it needs to be the truth it needs to be honest it needs to be realistic but I feel like there's just so much room within that to be you know I always say to people like I don't know I'm I know that I know the odds like when I was diagnosed at at the very beginning, before I had metastatic disease, I think I had about a 50% chance of living five years. That was my prognosis um, for me personally. And now I'm approaching my five-year diagnosis. I have metastatic disease, you know, so I'm, I've got a more advanced stage. But I just feel like those numbers are so useful for doctors and for, you know, that group of people. But for patients, that doesn't, that doesn't tell me anything about me. Because you know, you can apply the numbers to a group and to your mm -hmm. patient population, and that's really valuable for you as an oncologist. But for a patient, I just don't think that prognosis is going to help me in any way other than to freak me out at the beginning. Because at the end of the day, like someone will outlive their prognosis. A lot of the people will. And as we progress with our treatment and with our diagnoses becoming, you know, earlier and earlier and recognizing sarcomas earlier, these people will be diagnosed sooner and their treatment hopefully will be started sooner and then their prognosis will improve. And with all of that happening, I just don't think it's fair to, you know, people might want to know their prognosis, but I think limiting them to a number or to a, a time frame, I just think is so unhelpful. And that's why when a lot of people told me after I was diagnosed with metastatic disease that, you know, kind of give up on the big stuff and just focus on the now, I found that unhelpful. Like mm -hmm. nobody knows what will happen in the future. Like you don't. As an oncologist, you have the best idea of what could happen and you can prepare someone for their future and help them and you know, support them with whether it's medication or radiotherapy or whatever treatments a cancer patient is having. But I think that the hope goes such a long way. Like mm -hmm. it honestly goes such a long way. Just allowing myself to believe that I would survive until my wedding, like that, that counts for so much. And I think, you know, in addition to all the other treatments I've had over the last five years, one of the most powerful things I've had, I think, is my mindset. And it has mm -hmm. to be cultivated. It, you know, it doesn't just happen every day. And there's bad days and there's days where you're like, oh, my gosh, this sucks. But it has to be slowly cultivated. And the language that you use with yourself has to be, 
you know, something that you're regularly reflecting on so that you can allow yourself to see a future because it's sometimes really hard to. How did you, did you ever ask about prognosis or was that kind of information? Cause it's something I try not to talk about unless someone specifically asks. Um, I would, I would, pro- you know, I would say it's not curable or it's, uh, you know, I'd, I'd use broad terms, but I'd probably yeah. try and I'd certainly try to shy away. And if someone tried to pin me down, I'd give a, you know, <laughs> sit on the fence answer and say, this is the average, yeah. a bit like what you've said. Did yeah. you, was that kind of, was that information imparted on you kind of without you wanting? Was it from your medical training? Did you ask something- about it? So because I found out originally about my diagnosis while I was in Prague, I was um, on a like a medical school, like inter- student internship. And I found out there and I had no idea like what was going on. I didn't really know. In a Prague that, hospital? So. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was there um, like operating on an internship for general surgery and my leg had been hurting really bad. And I had a bet with a doctor about Wimbledon tennis tickets and he he got me an MRI so nobody expected it to be you know anything I'd been to my GP quite a lot in the UK and they had reassured me that it you know nothing to worry about so it was shocking when I found out um but yeah I think that I then just wanted to research it really quickly because I, I had to come back to the UK I had to get an appointment with my GP and then with the sarcoma specialist and it took a few weeks at least to get through that process of getting from Prague finding out to mm. specialist at Stanmore and uh, in that time I did a lot of on- online research myself and I found a lot you know it's easily accessible the information if you if you know where to look um but yeah even words like you said the word incurable which mm-hmm. I know uh that's a word that's often applied to me and uh I respect that word um but I I just don't like it because I feel like, obviously, statistically, people in my category are incurable mm-hmm. and you know, very difficult to cure metastatic cancer, especially like a sarcoma of my kind. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like we're always coming up with new things. The treatment is always evolving. So in my own head, I never use that word with myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't be offended if a medical professional applied it to me or wrote it in my notes or something, because I know like that is how they you know, as part of the, the grading and the staging or whatever. But I just don't like that word for myself because I feel like it's a limitation. And if you're telling yourself all the time, like, I'm incurable, it just feels depressing. Like, yeah, who knows what will happen in the future? And who knows what, you know, the treatment that I'm taking now on compassionate grounds is not a widely available treatment. And it's given me two years of like really good life and living really well with metastatic cancer. And I just feel like you never know. So... I feel like leaving room for the what if just saves me a lot of of grief. It's so it's so interesting. It's, it's it's honestly it's the hardest the hardest thing. And I I sometimes you you feel like you've got it right. Sometimes you you completely get it get it wrong. Not in terms of um kind of you know talking about outcomes, but how you how you talk yes, about the outcomes. Like delivery. Um, and I, I saw actually, I'm very good friends with Luke Grenfell Shaw, and I oh, saw yeah. that you met him. And yes. we've talked biking and running in depth about yes. about this kind of on on these lines. And yeah, being friends with him has 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 made me reflect hugely. Um, oh, he's but, incredible! He's so oh, cool. yeah. <laughs> you have a podcast with him already yeah we yeah we have we've done a couple with him um yeah 
he's um yeah he's he's insane but um he's yeah but actually becoming friends with him and talking we met through the charity actually he was okay. he was fundraising for move and then um we've done some crazy adventures together but um it's it's really made me reflect and I think as I, I don't know at, at medical school certainly when I trained the overriding kind of theme was you've got to be honest um sure and it's balancing that honesty with actually and I I do this now since talking to Luke I I always always try to say but some patients just surprise us and we can never yeah. never predict that and allowing that like a little spark for somebody is everything I I really believe like that just a glimmer you know and yeah. you, can, you can be honest and still tell people how it is like you can be realistic I mean I always have known like my situation very clearly um but I think yeah, just the way the, you know, that those heavy, heavy words are communicated or delivered, just the way in which they're delivered or like the environment or just the specific words used. I mean, you can convey the exact same message with the exact same level of truth or accuracy. Um, and it can just be so, it, it could be so much, I don't know, I, I've, I've had experiences where it's been done badly. Mm. So um, yeah, I've learned a lot, I think, from that as a patient. I guess I'd I'd throw into the mix avoiding the 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 tough discussions is just as bad as as not as taking yeah. away hope because that can put you know and there are some are some oncologists that I've seen I'm sure you have in your in your training who who just don't kind of go to the difficult parts of the conversation and that's mm. probably just as bad as as yeah. as making it all doom and gloom. Yeah, I don't think anybody needs anything to be covered up. You know, it's. I often find when I when I meet people, especially if I ever have to go into A and E, people are always like it's such a taboo subject for especially non-cancer specialized doctors that often other specialties will come to me and it's like they whisper it to me, like, <laughs> like oh, you've got cancer. I'm like, yes, bone cancer, that's me, that's the one. I mean, yeah, it's just like that taboo of talking about things that are serious or talking about death and dying it has become something that's like people are so afraid of saying. Um, and I don't think it should be like that. So I've tried to be really open about having cancer and being a doctor with cancer or a doctor with a disability. And I think it's important to see people like that in the community. How, how do you tell, do you tell your colleagues at work, the doctors, nurses yeah. that you work with? When I first started, I was so nervous to tell people. I was afraid that I would be um, not not necessarily pitied but like given easy jobs or like that people wouldn't really like give me the full f1 experience because they'd be like almost protecting me or um I didn't want that so I didn't tell anybody except for obviously my supervisors who needed to know but like none of the other colleagues um and then then it became weird because then you get to know everyone and then your friends and then it's like okay so when do I just casually just let this one slip because then you can <laughs> casually tell people and to me it's casual because it's you know it's been a part of my life for such a long time and it's it's like my chronic illness it's just something I deal with but to other people it can still be really triggering or shocking I think a lot of people don't expect it um particularly if you're like I don't know maybe they don't expect younger people to have cancer or you know fit people which is not true at all but it's just maybe a stereotype that they've had from you know social norms um and I think that it's better to just tell people. So I've learned over the last two years, I think it's just telling people up front and then, you know, they'll still be able to see how I work and how I am and 
how you know they don't need to treat me any differently and I just if I have trouble with something or if there's something I need help with I can just ask and it's way more seamless I think by just being open with people did have you found that people have treated you any differently sometimes yeah uh I get a lot of um I do get some people who are like almost overprotective or like very conscientious uh I'm slightly immunocompromised on my current chemotherapy regime, not nearly as much as my infusion chemos that I've been on in the past, but I get a lot of other doctors who are like, oh, PPE and like wear a mask for, you know, everything. And obviously I wear my PPE whenever it's within, you know, like whatever is required, Mm. required, uh, anything like that. Um, And I'm always, you know, keeping up to date with washing my hands and being mindful and all these things. But I have a lot of people who are like, almost want to bubble wrap me and keep me safe but I think I don't know I I know um, what my job entails I know that there's risks involved I know what my immunity is you know I have my bloods regularly checked and it's something that I manage for myself but uh, I can appreciate that other people don't want you know any harm to come my way so they're protective Mm. Um, but yeah I I think I'm a good advocate for myself and that if I feel uncomfortable in any situation you know let people know um, yeah and what about kind of protecting you emotionally? Do, if there's someone um, with cancer or someone who's dying or a death certificate, do, do people try and protect you and say, oh, no, Krista, you shouldn't shouldn't do that? Or do they no. Not- yeah, no. Um, I think initially after I tell people, sometimes uh, I notice other people's language sometimes changes a little bit. Um, but I I don't find that those experiences particularly triggering. Um, I actually find them like a really good opportunity to to communicate with people and to connect with people. Um, I don't usually tell patients that I have cancer because mm-hmm. because I think that when I'm speaking to a patient and I'm in the role of the doctor or the medical professional that it's not about me, it's about them. So I I don't usually tell them unless you know. If, it came up specifically that you know but I think once or twice ever have I ever told somebody and most times I think that's better because you know if if this yeah the spotlight and the focus and the and the energy should be on them at that time uh but yeah I think that I really value those conversations that I've had with patients that also have cancer or are palliative or in the last phase of their life which are two different things mm-hmm. and um I have a lot of respect and value like that has come from those conversations and I think it has made me a better doctor and I do think that my experiences as a patient hopefully has made me better at having those conversations have you have you talked to your peers about um kind of your your thoughts and your experiences and what you would wish them to take from that have you ever have you ever done that or not Uh, I've done a lot of speeches and talks within the cancer community, but not so much uh, to other medical professionals, which may be something that would be useful. I'm not sure. Uh, I think maybe at the beginning, you get a bit of imposter syndrome, like I'm the junior doctor. So how can I tell anybody about, you know, language when, you know, that, you know, they're the experts, you know, they're all higher grade than I am. Um, But yeah, maybe that's something I could consider if you think people would value that. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I as I said at the start, I've learned so much from talking to people like you through this podcast. And I 
you know, like your talk at, at the sarcoma conference, it, that that resonates so much more with me than some basic science. CMEC does this with la la la. Like I, I need to know about the drugs and a bit yeah. about the science, but I I need to know more about the stories and that what that's what moves me. But I think um, it's very interesting. That so this year at the sarcoma conference, all the talks were in one room, so you either listen to your talk and they had a whole stream on from the charities and patient perspective um the year before there was a a nurses in inverted commas stream and a basic science doctor stream and obviously nearly all the doctors I think I was the only nurse only nurse only doctors in the nurses stream but that to me there was one about um oh there there were just all different streams lgbq2 patients and how you and then end of life and it was all so so important but doctors don't go but having seen how your talk shut all the surgeons up (laughs) there's definitely a place for you sharing your your I guess just your experiences and and what it meant to you yeah I think it's important to talk about it I think language is so it's so important it's such a tool I mean you could have two people give the exact same diagnosis and break that news to a patient but you know after each of those discussions it could just go so differently for that person and I don't know if this is true but I like to believe that it would impact like how you move forward with your treatment and how you know compliant you are and how involved you are and the you know the decision making it, it all comes from communication and it's so important to feel like it's it's a conversation mm. uh, yeah absolutely so be, being a junior doctor's I mean right now it's a junior doctor strikes so I'm about to do my night shift tonight oh, no. <laughs> um, the junior luck. doctors it's tough it's so tough being a junior doctor um it's a hard job. <laughs> being a junior doctor with cancer must be even tougher on so many levels um how's your first 20 year and a half I think you've been a year and a half two years working yeah. going on two years now uh well yeah almost um, it's been hard, but amazing. I love my job. Uh, I really, I really actually really enjoy being in the hospital. I kind of like, um, being in the middle of the madness. Uh, it is not for everybody. Um, and I do support the strikes and yeah, I've learned so much about uh, the healthcare system from the doctor's perspective whereas before I'd only known so much about the you know the patient's perspective and uh, I don't know I just have so much love for the NHS and I just want it to to go on working and to be well mm. and to be well supported and I think that if we want it to be well we have to continue to support the junior doctors who are kind of like the foundation level especially in hospital um, I don't know I you know you spend a lot of days just running around doing as much as you possibly can you know, no bathroom breaks, no lunch breaks, guzzling coffee, really long hours, late, you're holding three bleeps, you know, when you're on surgery, you know, your veg has gone down to theater and with your consultant and you're there just handling stuff. <laughs> um, and that's crazy. Um, and it's amazing what kind of conversations and what jobs can sometimes get left on the junior doctor. Um, I'm really lucky in that I've always felt well supported in my trust and I've always had a really you know good experience as a junior doctor but that's not to say that at times it hasn't been overwhelming and uh, yeah it's a lot of pressure it's a lot of pressure for for a job it surprises me a lot because I'm Canadian in Canada in order to become a doctor you have to do an undergrad degree so everyone that is finished medical school 
is like at least like in their mid, you know, usually mid 20s. Whereas in England, you can qualify as a doctor really young, you can go straight into it. And that to me is like, wow, it's a lot of pressure for some, some you know, young people that are still relatively quite young, um, uh, which is, you know, incredible that they're, you know, facing so much and these really big decisions. Um, so yeah, I, I'm fully in favor of pay restoration. Am mm -hmm. I allowed to say that? Um, oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm, yeah, I am as well. And for job retention as well, I think, a lot of people come into the profession and it's, you know, it's overwhelming, it's underpaid and um, it's really high pressure and exhausting. And sadly, a lot of people, after all of that, those years of training and skills, they leave the profession um, because, uh, you know, they, they can't cope with, you know, the stress or they're underpaid or undervalued. And, and we're losing a lot of, you know, really well-qualified staff and team members. And that's a shame. Um, yeah, because you've come so far to, to get into the into the role. But I do understand why that is. Um, yeah, I think every year since 2016, there's been an increased number mm. of doctors leaving the profession after foundation. And that's pretty much you, you describe very, um, it's quite interesting looking down your Instagram, actually, the diversity of the roles of the junior doctor. And it's been interesting <laughs> doing some been... junior doctor shifts because it, it takes you right back and you... Yeah. Uh, you know it's, it's been really good how how do you do you have to compartmentalize because I, I guess what I was alluding at being a junior doctor is tough alone but dealing with uncertainty around scams or side effects from treatment mm. how how do you compartmentalize or or how do you deal with the fact that you are a patient as at the same time as dealing with a, yeah. a job which at sometimes you probably I don't know like every doctor or anyone with any job presumably you have days where you think I really don't want to go into work today yeah and also everybody's got something even if it's not cancer everybody has something going on in their life that's affecting them mm. um in terms of my treatment side effects I do get quite a lot um I try not to worry about them just deal with them as they come because you often can't predict them like I don't know my chemo can cause me to have a really bad belly which is obviously embarrassing um mm. in one of my recent jobs the bathroom was like a tiny thin wall away from the doctor's office where all 20 doctors sat. Absolutely <laughs> mortified when you have a bad chemo belly, you need to go to the bathroom in there. So I actually embarrassingly used to go to a farther away bathroom. I used to like be like, oh, I'm just going to loo. And I'd go further away so I wouldn't be embarrassed. Um, and then, you know, I get um, bad hand cramps with my treatment that I'm on now. And I really enjoy surgery and I've been lucky enough to assist in a lot of operations. And luckily I've never had like a hand cramp, but I'm always kind of worried about that. Obviously I'd never want it to affect my practice. They don't happen, you know, very often, you know, once in a blue moon, but I'd always be conscientious about like, is there someone who, if I need to tap out that someone else could scrub in? Um, yeah, I think, I think, I don't know. My perspective is I just want to be busy. I really like my job. Um, I think it distracts me a lot of the time. I take chemotherapy Monday to Friday. Um, so obviously those are the, usually the days that I'm at work. So I always feel like, well, I must be doing good if I'm well enough to take chemotherapy and go to work. Mm. Um, yeah. And if, and I, I also cut myself a lot of slack. If I have a bad day, I'm not afraid to call in and say I'm, I'm staying home sick today. Um, it doesn't happen often, but I try to give myself grace when it does happen and not feel like down about it. I just, if you need a day, you need a day. It's, I always say you can't, I mean, like, yeah, you can't look after 
others unless you're looking after yourself yeah. and that whether that's for cancer or whatever else is going in your life you you can only be a good doctor if you're in a good place yourself definitely yeah. and you you seem to have um you seem to make a point of proving your doctors wrong <laughs> so firstly with medical school but um you climbed the highest mountain <laughs> in Atlas last year as well <laughs> oh, tell me about that <laughs> Uh, so I went to my surgeons who did my leg. So, uh, I have an endoprosthetic left leg, which, um, I had because my primary tumor was in my femur. So I've had my femur, my knee, the top half of my tibia and all four of my quads removed in my left leg from my primary bone cancer. And I have a metal implant. So if you can imagine like a metal femur bone, a metal knee and a metal top half of my tibia. And it bends like a metal leg you would expect it to bend to about 90 degrees like a Barbie and then it stops. Um, and because I don't have quads in that leg, I've learned to walk again with compensating muscles. And after my initial surgery, they said they didn't think I would ever be able to lift my leg again. I thought I'd have foot drop. Um, and they were, you know, very strict with me about, you know, you're never going to be able to run. You're never going to be able to jump. You're not going to be able to do quite a lot of things. Um, and they've also told me that the lifespan of this metal leg is about 10 years. But if I uh, have a very ad adventurous lifestyle, as they <laughs> then I could decrease the lifespan of my leg and need a replacement sooner rather than later. Because obviously the artificial joint can get worn down in things. Um, I'm forbidden from doing things still like running, which is a shame because I was a big runner before I was diagnosed. Um, I still dream about running. Yeah. And then I had to find other hobbies, obviously, to freak them out. So I decided to take up uh, mountain climbing, which is very casual, uh, because my, my fiance, Oliver, loves mountains. We've always liked hiking. And then we decided last year that we would go and hike Mount Tubecall, which is the highest peak in the Atlas Mountains. I and know. <laughs> so I went to uh, my my surgeons and I ran this past them. <laughs> and uh, they were less than impressed. Um, they looked at me like I was crazy. And, and the surgeon looked at me and said, you know, that's not a normal leg, right? You know that, right? And I'm like, yes, I know that. Like, I know that. Um, it'll be fine. So off we go um, to Morocco to hike this great big mountain. It took us five days. Uh, on the second day after our acclimatization trek, I had some chest pain. But obviously I was monitoring my own obs and I was fine. And my trachea was in the midline and I would just keep going up. So um, when I got back, I still had the chest pain. My leg was okay, actually, in the end. And I went to uh, A&E when I returned to the UK five days later and I had a pneumothorax, mm. which is like a collapsed lung. Um, yeah. And that can, so, can, cabazantinib can cause that, can't it, sometimes? It, it, yeah, it doesn't help. And plus I had a wedge resection of my lung and I have pleural metastases in, in my left lung. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, there's, there's risk factors there. Uh, <laughs> So in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have flown back to the UK with a collapsed lung, but I didn't know it at the time. And obviously now that I know, I wouldn't hike again with a collapsed lung, but we are now planning a trip to Killy for this summer. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah. So how amazing was it to, I mean, it was that's so good. It was amazing. It was like, especially because a lot of people told me, you know, you, you probably won't be able to walk properly. I was on crutches and in a wheelchair for quite a long time for years. 
Um, and I don't know, I just, I think I'm a bit stubborn <laughs> when people tell me that there's something I can't do. Uh, and I really wanted to be a part of the team. My partner, Oliver, really likes hiking and climbing, and he wants to go and do all the seven summits, so the highest peak on each continent. And I just, I just didn't want to miss out. Like, this is something I would have been so up for pre-cancer, and I would have been so good at. I was always really fit. I played a lot of sports, all, all of which I can no longer play, which I find really challenging. Um, and I just, yeah, I just want to keep up with the team. I just want to be a part of the group. I mean, I don't need to be the fastest anymore. I don't need to be, um, you know, the, the first one up. And in preparing for Killy, there's a big part of me that's nervous that I won't get to the top because summit in Killy is, it's even higher than Tupac. Mm. And uh, instead of five days, it's I think eight days. Uh, so, but I'm going to take my own advice and just prepare for it and just go for the goal. And if I don't get to the top, I think even if I could go and, and do my best, I think that would be really, yeah, a, a worthwhile experience. Oh, I, you, you absolutely have to. I, I mean, I, I realized, so I used to do a lot of triathlon and race kind of professionally. And then I stopped just before lockdown, actually. And oh, yeah. lockdown came and I realized I don't need to race, but I need to be out of my comfort zone. I need to yeah. do something that scares me. And I always think an adventure is, for me, I hear it's an adventure is something you hear about and you go, oh my God, I really want to do that. That's going to be so yeah. hard. And then yeah. the night before you think, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and then you do it and there's highs and there's so many lows, yes, but you finish yeah. and you've just got this, wow, that was amazing. And It's, it's, it's um, just like that. It's like putting yourself out of your comfort zone so that you can feel those, you know, you don't get those highs from sitting at home, do you? You just got to get out there. I don't know. A hundred percent. And if you, you know, I realize this again, racing, like it's better to try and not make yeah. it than to sit yeah. at home and think, I wonder if I could, because you yeah. you never know. I, I guess with medical school, you never know. You you never, yeah. you never know it. You know, you, if, if you don't make it, then so what? It doesn't matter. At least exactly. you know you've tried and maybe you go back the year later and try again. Yeah. <laughs> and all the time that you spent preparing was worthwhile time. Like in the preparation for Kelly, there's a lot of pre-hikes and camping trips and long really long walks like Hadrian Wall, Hadrian's Wall and stuff like that and all of those experience in the process to getting to Killy are going to be so enriching and incredible and wonderful in themselves and if I didn't know I was going to do Killy and need to do all this prep I probably wouldn't be pushing myself to do all of this mm. so I think it's so important to have goals and to have things that are hard in front of you I yeah 100% but we're clearly I mean I signed up for a crazy yeah. crazy thing next January What's crazy, I might might well not finish it but I exactly what you said my partner and I have have just said it's going to be so much fun trying to get to that start yeah. not injured. is it another race no oh, it's a it's called the spine race so it's um it's the length of the Pennine way in January but you you don't where well, you sleep kind of on the way so it all counts Wow. Um, so it's bonkers it's it's crazy and I'm I'm like well not finished like I sprained my ankle so many times I'm not good in the cold and the wet and people think I'll be fine because I used to be quite good but it's so far out of my comfort zone yeah but I love the challenge of exactly what you said the challenge of the weekends the challenge of running through the nights the challenge yeah. of dealing with the cold the the challenge of actually you know if I do sprain my ankle it's not the end of the world. I could probably yeah. take it up. And if I can't keep going, at least I've tried. 
Yeah. And all those, like all those weekends spent running and all those, you know, that time dedicated the whole time you'll be feeling better for it. I think, yeah, it's so worthwhile. So on that note, I'm going to do a plug. Uh, we have got for Move Charity in September, our Three Peaks Challenge, uh, which Yay. is the Yorkshire Three Peaks. So if anyone is listening and thinks, do you know what, Krista and Lucy have got me inspired, I need a challenge. Um, yes. Have a look at our website and um, yeah, we would love you guys to come and join us and um, and you, Krista, if you wanted to. Oh, I'd but, um, love to come, definitely. So the Yorkshire Three Peaks, I think it's, uh, I can't remember the names of the Three Peaks, but you have 12 hours to do it. It's achievable, but it's tough. Um, but yeah, I think that'll be good fun. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Our dogs welcome. Our dogs are absolutely welcome. Absolutely. <laughs> um <laughs> I was um, I was reading your Instagram before we were chatting, and um, some of your well, some of your posts are poetic, but most of them are are poetic without trying to be. And they, you have a way with words where you balance this this clear joy you have for for life, for living, for being alive, for being able to do all the fun things. But then amongst that, you just throw in a almost a throwaway comment about the reality of mm. living with cancer um do you do you take a lot from writing them I I found Mm. I I just found it so you know you describe a normal life as a junior doctor and then you throw in something crazy that most people (laughs) your age would never think about and then you go back to the the normality but coming out is this this joy this lust for for living I think I don't know I've always loved writing uh, before so I'm a graduate entry medical student so before I was a doctor I was a teacher mm-hmm. and before I was a teacher I was doing an English literature major oh wow so you're so, a teacher first yeah and I've always loved writing books I've written poetry for as long as I can remember and um, poetry more than this like poetry that no one but me understands it's all <laughs> words. but I find it really cathartic to write about it And I love that other people connect with it. It's been so rewarding to have other people reach out to me through Instagram where I I write a lot, just that, you know, they they never knew anyone with bone cancer or they didn't, you know, know anybody else that was working as a doctor with cancer. And and those connections I find really valuable. And I I just love it. I think it's been a great outlet for me. Obviously, having cancer can be traumatic and overwhelming and putting it out there and having other people sort of support you, the community, it's just been really good. I, I think the, the sarcoma community particularly is incredible. I mean, mm. it's a rare cancer, but everyone seems to find each other and support each other and really root for each other. So I find that just really warming and, and touching. And it's, it's gotten me through a lot of tough times, a lot of the friends that I've made through the cancer community and a lot through the blog through Instagram and um, yeah I I really I love writing and I think it's been a great outlet for me how do you how do you deal so I wrote a blog very recently well I wrote it a while ago actually um about uh the challenges of a cancer support group and the fact that I've made friends through 5k your way with a lot of people a lot of whom yeah. have died and I wrote it yeah. probably six months ago but only shared it a couple of weeks ago because I wasn't I wasn't sure how people would take it, mm. but how, how it's something I'd never really thought about. How, how do you deal with making friends with people with, 
with cancer because some of them will have died yeah, yeah some have few quite a few have um I specifically had a really lovely friend who was younger than me she was nearly 10 years younger than me and we were diagnosed around the same time with the same type of cancer in the same leg and we had the same treatment on the same days and so we did all of our chemo together we used to sit side by side <laughs> and uh, during chemo which is pretty rigorous it's like five days on five days off we used to puzzle together we got really into puzzling uh, she was Serena um, sadly she passed away uh, not long after we both finished treatment and it is it's surreal to lose someone in that way not only because you get some survivors um guilt but you also mm -hmm. feel you just feel a lot of emotions i mean you fear for your own life you feel for their family that you know um you feel guilty for being the one that lived and it's very overwhelming but not a lot of people know what it's like to have a sarcoma and to go through treatment like that. So to have someone to be able to connect with, um, those friendships that I have are so beautiful. And a lot of, you know, my friends that are still alive, we all still support each other. And those friendships mean so much to me. Um, I'm getting married in a, in a few weeks and Serena's parents are coming to our oh. wedding. Um, so it's like a full circle moment. It's really beautiful that we're still close with them. And some of my other cancer friends are coming and the community is just so supportive. And I, I don't know where I'd be without them. In a, in a big way, a lot of them have represented hope for me. So when I was first diagnosed and when I was in my wheelchair and non-weight bearing and on chemo, I met someone who walked into the cancer center who had the operation that I'd had. And I'd never seen anyone in person who'd had the operation walking. And yeah. as he walked in, I was like, I was like, I idolize you. Like, how can I, like, what do you, I want what you're having. Like, let's go. And to me, Did you go and talk to him. Oh yeah, we're now really close friends. He's coming to my wedding with his partner <laughs> and um, he's amazing. And to have these people in our, in our lives, in the community that have been through similar things, which are you know, atrocious, you know, gr just grueling, awful things, you know, the chemotherapy particularly or the surgeries. Um, but to find someone else who's been through it and lived through it um, offers you so much hope and to have the friends that have passed away or, or you know, died along the way, I think about her all the time. I think about her all the time and it, and it is very, very sad. Um, but it's, it's just something that I carry with me. I think you just carry their memory. Yeah. Social media can be, it can be so powerful. It can be such a force for good. And I think I see that through, yeah, the camp for the, for the, the camp in the cancer world. I mean, you yeah. talk about the club that no one wants to be part of, but it can yeah. be such a massive supportive community. Yeah, I mean, not a lot of people uh, like I obviously have a, a, a blog on Instagram and luckily not a lot of people will put like negative comments or things. <laughs> Most of it, like 99% of it is really nice. Um, I don't know if you could go on to like a cancer blog and write mean things. I think, you know, more yeah. not <laughs> probably not a very happy person. Probably not yeah. advisable. But yeah, I don't know if it's for that reason. People just it just tends to attract other like sort of people going through other things or similar things but everyone on there just seems to be you know uplifting uplifting each other which is a nice space it feels like a really safe part of social media 
Krista, we've almost been chatting for an hour. I could chat to you for two hours, but I'm sure you've got better, <laughs> better things to do. It's a, it, I feel, you know, you've got so much knowledge, so much to say. Um, is there anything you'd like to share or, or talk about? Or advice for me as an oncologist, I guess. Oh, just never forget to leave hope out there for people. And I'm sure you do that already. And thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me. It's really, really nice. And I'd really like to come to do the Yorkshire Three Piece Challenge. Amazing. I'm not letting <laughs> I'm you get out of this. Really <laughs> so if anybody's listening, I'll see you there. I'll get Luke. I think Luke's hopefully coming as well. So um, Is it really? I'll... Oh. You, um, well, good luck trying to do it with Luke. He'll probably do yeah, it five I know, times. He's laughing <laughs> me. I'm going to bring my dog so that my dog can pull me up. Good plan. Good plan. My, my sled and get my dog to just run me up the hill. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be. I mean, I would. I would really love to meet you face to face. So September the sixteenth. Um, I'll pin you down to that. Um, but yeah, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Um, I definitely have still got loads of questions but um I think <laughs> an hour is time to call it quits thank you wow isn't Krista amazing um honestly it is such a privilege for me to be able to have these conversations um I don't know how many interviews I've done now since we started but I think for me as an oncologist probably the biggest thing I've taken away that nearly unanimously comes across uh from from all of our guests is the importance of never ever taking away hope at medical school I think we're taught to be honest with patients we're taught some techniques to break bad news sensitively but I don't remember ever ever having any discussions on the importance of never taking away hope um and I think that's something that I have learned from doing this podcast that hopefully is changing the way I am as a doctor. Um, thank you, Krista. You are really, I mean, inspiring is not the right word, but um, I loved chatting with you. And if you want some uh, uplifting reading, I'd thoroughly recommend having a scroll through Krista's Instagram page because she really does have an art of um, describing the, the, the joys of life, I guess. You'll come away wanting to... to <laughs> to live life better than you you do right now. Um, but she's also very uh, real about what it's like to have metastatic cancer. Um, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you're all, uh, after listening to Krista, a bit excited at the prospects of a challenge. We would love you to come and join us at the Yorkshire Three Peaks on the 16th of September. Uh, this is an achievable challenge. It's not going to be easy, but it will put you out of your comfort zone, but it is achievable. Uh, it's going to be super fun. We're joined by Louise Minchin and um, yeah, I'm really excited. I'd really love to meet as many of you as possible. So if you're interested, check us out on movecharity.org and then you York, uh, forward slash Yorkshire Three Peaks. Just Google Yorkshire Three Peaks Move Charity. Um, thank you for listening. If you did enjoy the episode, um, we would be super grateful if you could take a couple of minutes to just give us a review or a like, or even better, share it with a friend. Um, we really love hearing from you. So please do get in touch with any feedback or comments. Uh, if you uh, if anything resonated with you, particularly from this episode, let us know and we'll pass that on to Krista. Um, and if you're a new listener, check us out on social media, 5K UA and Move Charity. In the meantime, have a great couple of weeks and we will be back soon with another episode. Um, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.